Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we are talking about red teaming and InfoSec with Gemma Moore. She's the director over at Cyrus, and she was just a wealth of information when it comes to red teaming. What stuck out to you, Ethan? Oh, I guess my favorite part of this conversation, Ned, was when we got into the ethics of red teaming. That is, you've been hired to get into a company and show them all of their weak places and break in and how did you do it and all that. But there are limits on what you can do as a contracted red teamer versus what a real nefarious bad guy might do. And how to walk that line is a big part of what red teaming is all about. It's fascinating. Yeah. What do those compromises mean when you want to act like the adversary, but you can't quite? And how do you arrange that? We're going to cover all that and more with this episode with Gemma Moore. Enjoy it. Well, Gemma, welcome to the show. I am super excited to have you on the show. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into this world of security? Did you always have a passion for it or was it a more circuitous route that you followed to get there? It's a strange story. Um, I didn't intend to get into security at all. So I am a red teamer now. I was a penetration tester for about 20 years and I've sort of evolved from being a a pen tester into a red teamer and everything that goes with that. And these days, mostly what I spend my time doing is managing and running red teams rather than actually doing the red teams. So it's sort of a a level of abstraction above that. Um, But I didn't intend to get into security. It wasn't a goal or a dream of mine. What actually happened was I got bored. And (laughs) that tends to happen a lot in my life. (laughs) I did all the sciences at school and I got bored of the sciences. So when I went to university, I wanted to do something different. So I went into computing and then I got to the end of my degree and you know then you have to go and do real life stuff and get a job and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't want to be a developer and I didn't want to be a network engineer I didn't really want to do system stuff I know terrible isn't it I saw this um for a security consultant position that sounded like it was kind of fun and I didn't know what pen testing was at the time and I didn't really know what the job description was but it did sound like fun so I applied for it got it and ended up finding a place where I really fit. And it was a great move for me. And it was purely serendipity um, because I ended up working with some really clever people who knew a huge amount about systems and applications and networks, all from this weird angle that you look at it from, from a sort of attacking red team perspective. And they were all uh, just sharing knowledge and showing me cool things and I couldn't get enough of it. So that's how I got into security. Now, Gemma, you said red team 14, maybe 18 times in the last minute and a half. So we better start there. <laughs> what the heck is red teaming? It's when we are attacking a business or an organization from the point of view of an adversary to try and work out, can we do it? How can we do it? And can people stop us? Now, a lot of people will be familiar with red teaming. They might also be familiar with blue teaming. They're probably familiar with the term penetration testing, and they're all kind of related to each other, but there's also a hell of a lot of um, really confusing methodology and jargon in there as well. So start with pen testing, which is kind of the simplest bit of it. With a penetration test, we take a really defined scope of like an application or a system or a network, and we go and test it. And we try and find all the technical vulnerabilities in that system, in that network, within that scope. We try and get good coverage of the whole thing and say, right, these are all the problems with the technology that you've implemented or the application you developed. Go fix all these things. That's all the technical vulnerabilities fixed. Big tick. Happy days. Red team is rather than taking a defined scope like an application or a system, you take a whole organization. And instead of saying we're going to find all the technical vulnerabilities, you're going to say, how do we as an adversary achieve the objective that we want to get the thing that we want against this organization? And that involves people, involves process, 
it involves technology as well. There's always technical vulnerabilities in there, but we're looking at the whole end-to-end piece of people, process, technology, the whole organization, not just like a defined, isolated scope. And your objective isn't find all the vulnerabilities. Your objective is something like, how do I get to a position where I can install ransomware in this network? How do I get to a position where I've stolen the customer database? Or how do I get to a position where you know, I can install Magecart on the application and start harvesting creds or get money or because that's the type of objective that your adversary actually has you know they're not going to go and do a full coverage pen test they don't care about all the technical (laughs) vulnerabilities they just want the one that lets them do the thing they want to do right driven by a specific goal where it, it could be data exfiltration but it's a specific goal it sounds like is the point yeah it's a specific goal it's a specific objective it is a thing that an adversary will want to do and as the red team we go in there and we're trying to work out can we find a pathway from whatever our starting point is it's normally a sort of external attacker to achieving that goal that the attacker would do but of course we're doing it ethically we're doing it legally we're doing it (laughs) in a way that is is helpful and now the blue team we come to now the blue team their job is to stop us Their job is to stop us having fun and catch us, (laughs) see what we're doing, prevent us, contain us. And basically, the blue team, they're always there in an organization. They're the defenders. They're the ones in charge of preventing this stuff from happening. And when you are part of the red team, you're playing against the blue team. When you're part of the blue team, you're playing against the red team. All fairly straightforward. We're trying to get a pathway that lets us achieve the objective. The blue team is trying to use their controls and their procedures and all the information they've got to stop it happening. So that's the red team and the blue team. There's another team in all of this that we haven't mentioned yet. That's normally known as the yellow team. And they're the people that built all the things that are happening. So they would be the systems architects or the cloud engineers or the developers. They are the people that built all the stuff that the red team and the blue team are kind of playing with here. And then you get into a world of very confusing things of other colours. So purple teaming is a phrase that may have come up at some point. Now, purple teaming is when you get the red team and the blue team together. Go back to primary school or kindergarten and you're mixing paint, right? So you're red and you're blue, you get purple. That's your purple team. That's what happens when you get your attackers and your defenders together and you get your defenders showing your attackers what they saw and what they did and your attackers showing your defenders well, you didn't see this or you didn't see that and you could have done this bit of response differently and actually your containment didn't work. And you can think of it as a sort of game of back and forth where your red team and your blue team can work together and learn things about each other and get better at their jobs, both of them. Okay, in a typical engagement without a purple team, you'd have the red team trying to achieve their objective and whether or not they achieved it, they produce a report, that report might end up in the hands of the blue team and that might be the end of the engagement. But in a purple team scenario, you're working more interactively throughout the exercise. So you have that feedback loop there. That's the general idea. Quite often, there'll be a little bit of sort of purple time at the end of a normal red team as well. So um, one of the things that's really important if you want to get good value out of red teaming is to make sure your blue team actually learns some stuff from it. Because, you know, if you're going to spend a lot of money having a red team come in and challenge all your defenses, you want to know after the end of that, that your blue team know how to better defend in future because that's what it's all about at the end of the day so there's often a little bit at the end but most of the time if you've got sort of a pure red team and a pure blue team it does work like that and is the goal of the yellow team to stand in the corner and be made fun of because of their inadequate security postures so that is really cruel and unfortunately it can end up that way if you do it wrong (laughs) because so there's there's other teams as well so you've got the orange team 
Now the orange team <laughs> is when you get the red team and the yellow team together. So you get the builders and the attackers and you try and teach the developers or the people who built this how they get attacked so that they have better security awareness so they know mm -hmm. better how to defend. And then you've got, if you take the yellow team and you put them with the blue team, you get the green team. And that's where, you know, you need the builders to understand what it is the blue team are doing and how to sort of put automation in build processes and things and maybe hooks in code so that the logging is right and the, you know, everything comes together and that the blue team have the information they need to respond and they understand how everything works. So quite often you can get in organizations security in silos. So you get the blue team, they don't talk to the yellow team mm -hmm. and the red team doesn't talk to the blue team. And then you end up in a situation where, yeah, the yellow team basically get this report with their homework's been marked and go, go do better. And it right, doesn't right. help. It's not even help. So that's, silo security is a problem. But yeah, certainly... I also find this color wheel kind of confusing too. Yeah. Um, everyone should talk to each other. That's how it works best. My experience in most organizations was the security team was the team of no. Yeah. And no, you can't do that. No, you're not allowed to do that. And like you said, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction between the yellow team and what would be the blue team. Uh, it was more just directives would come down from the blue team and the yellow team would get spanked for doing things wrong. And then we'd have to go cry in a corner and, and fix whatever it was. Or we get these like 60 page Nessus reports that were completely useless to us, but that's what we would get from the blue team. So yeah, a little more collaboration there would be pretty effective. It's, it's all about um, the whole color wheel. It's, <laughs> it's all about getting people talking to each other and understanding other points of view in order to get holistic. It's a horrible, horrible word, which maybe put synergistically in there as well. A synergistic, <laughs> holistic picture of your security and get people operating better. Um, but yeah, um, if you end up in silos, you do get those negative outcomes. And it, it's better if you do have interaction or at least some form of communication between all the different teams working together at some point. Would a typical red team be focused on a, a particular segment of the stack? Do you have red teams that just focus on infrastructure or just applications or IM or social engineering? Or is it more a broader swath of the stack that you're trying to focus on? It can be anything. That's the beauty of it, really. And possibly the complication as well, because it can be anything. So normally... As a red team, you're operating against a whole business, but you can also turn that around and say, all right, well, let's not do the whole business. Let's do this particular critical function and let's take this particular threat that we know about for this critical function. So it might be, you know, you've got a particular payment website, for example, a particular shop that you operate as a business and you want to do a red team on that shop and you've got particular intelligence that you've had, you know, adversaries trying to get access to whatever this web server is or this shop because you think they're going to install Magecart. And that, that's your scenario that you use and that you want the red team to emulate. You know, you want to try and get access to that web server, get to a position you install Magecart and can focus then on sort of a critical function. But you tend not to focus on one particular area of the stack because it's like I say, it's people, it's process, it's technology. What there is often is a kind of asymmetry in the amount of information that people have about different areas of the stack. So you'll find um, quite often that and this comes back to the silos, the blue team will have really good visibility quite often of the infrastructure and they'll have really good visibility of things like I am logging and they'll have really good visibility of the sort of infrastructure or platform as a service or areas mm -hmm. of the stack, but they won't actually understand how the applications work. And if you start going at application level attacks, because they don't know how the thing was put together or they right. didn't develop it themselves or they haven't got the logs from it. They can't answer 
lots of other questions about what an adversary did at the application layer. And they have to go digging for that information in, you know, there's no dashboard for that. They don't have alerts for that. It's things like you may find that they have, you know, if you have an application with a file upload, this is a, an example that we, that we did come across as part of a red team. So we we're doing a red team that involved this application. And our goal, we were trying to upload a malicious file that someone else would download because that was our route to getting execution on a different machine. So we were okay. trying to upload a piece of malware in a document. And we uploaded a piece of test malware in a document, got detected by the AV layer that was in this application. Mm-hmm. Alert gets fired off. AV's been triggered, right? That document's been deleted. So we uploaded a different one with a piece of you know evasion code in there so that we could get around the AV. That one uploaded absolutely fine and was, was hosted there. Perfect. Now, when the blue team get the alert that there was AV detection on this thing, their alert said AV has triggered, file has been deleted. As far as they're concerned, alert closed. What they couldn't do was then reconstruct the, okay, what else has this person uploaded? Right. Because their visibility is what the AV piece of software did and that it deleted the file. What they don't have then is the application layer link So they got the AV, what was in the S3 bucket, what was deleted from the S3 bucket. What they didn't have was that link to the application layer saying, which app user was this? Where did they log on from? What else did they upload? You know, what other files has this user put into the environment? And were they malicious too? And do we need to do a triage of them and stuff like that? So it's that missing link between something in the S3 bucket triggered and deleted this and what actually did the person do in the application? And quite often there's a mismatch there. And that's where the talking to the builders comes in when you're part of the blue team and understanding actually that other layer. Right. It's it's part of a larger pattern as opposed to just going, oh, an alert, but it's resolved. Everything's fine. I can go back to yeah. what I was doing. Because the threat is not the alert. The threat is the person. You know, it's not, <laughs> you close the alert, fine. That's, that's not got rid of the threat. You need to understand who the threat is and what they're trying to do in order to actually respond effectively. As you've been sharing these anecdotes with us, different examples and so on, red teaming sounds kind of Hollywood, kind of glamorous, but <laughs> maybe put some reality around it. What's it really like to be a red teamer? And maybe compare what it's like if you're outside the organization as a contractor doing red teaming versus inside the organization as an employee doing red teaming. We come from it. I'm a contractor. Can we come in? We do our red teaming. We do our debriefing. We probably do our purple teaming as well. And then we go away and let everyone else deal with the fallout. So that's probably the that's the best side of it because you get to do it full time. You don't deal with the politics and the you know day to day grind and things like that. When you are an employed, a sort of an inside red team though, you've got much better knowledge of what's going on in the organization and you can actually build up those relationships with people in the blue team. So where you've got organizations that have, you know, really effective internal red teams, they do purple teaming pretty much all the time. They're constantly talking to the builders and showing them things that they found. And, you know, if you're an internal red team, you can kind of, you kind of got an ad hoc mandate to do either big projects or little bits of investigation here and there on various things. And then you can go and talk about it. You mentioned earlier about um, 60-page Nessus reports. Well, your internal red team will probably run Nessus and come up with a 60-page report. But what your internal red team will also do is when you've got a Nessus report, like the interesting stuff, it's never the criticals. It's never the highs. That's not where the fun is. The fun is down there in those info bits at the bottom where nobody ever looks. That's where a red team has their fun. It's things like what's in the file shares and, you know, who's, you know, it's always, it's always data down in the, you know, what's the database service that you've got listening on this port that Nessus doesn't know how to connect to. It's stuff like that. 
So the vulnerabilities, the big headline, are exploitable vulnerability, exploitable vulnerability. Yeah, that's all right. Fine. Close those off. But your red teamer, most of the time, it's all that stuff that's down there in the little info bit that we end up using. I mean, I used to get those reports from Nessus and I'd look at what what are the high value CVEs? That's the ones I'm going to percolate up to my boss and go, we got to patch this. We got to get this done. This other stuff, much lower risk. We'll get it done at some point. Not such a big deal. And you're telling me I'm wrong. Well, not necessarily (laughs) wrong. You know, it's just, you know, the the high value stuff, the stuff that's remotely exportable, it's got exploit code, obviously patch it, always patch it. But longer term, it's that stuff in the info that will kill you. It's always the same stuff. It's always, you know, file servers that don't have any auth on file shares or they're or that are readable by everyone in the organization mm-hmm. that have passwords in, that have network diagrams in, that have config files for all your core infrastructure, that have, you know, a password archive that's got a predictable password. It's always the same stuff. And it's that stuff down there that it's like when you you know when you've got a sticky label. And you can't get it off because it's on the backing. You need to just pick and pick and pick until you find a corner and then suddenly it peels off all at once. Mm-hmm. That is what that info bit down at the bottom of the Nessa scan or any kind of vulnerability scan is like. It's the little bit that lets you get the corner, that lets you peel off the whole label, that lets you end up exploiting the whole thing. It's always the same. You spend ages looking around for the little corner that lets you pick, 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 and you'll find the corner. And then suddenly things start falling down in a row. So in answer to to red teaming, it's probably very boring most of the time because you're doing this really diligent search for the next thing, search for the next thing, wait for someone to click on a phishing email or wait for somebody to read a file or wait for, you know, the right person to come along. And then suddenly for that extra 10%, you're just running on adrenaline because you're running down to getting your objective, you know, in the bag. Right. As a contractor... I mean, you get contracted as a red teamer and you're given an objective. Do you typically come up with that objective yourself or is it the organization approaches you and said, this is what we're concerned about and we'd like you to test to see if that objective is possible? It's normally a combination. So most of the time, an organization that comes to us will have an idea of what they're worried about and where their, you know, their crown jewels are and what the scenario is that they're most concerned about. But they might have external threat intelligence providers that they, you know, help formulate the scenario. So they will say, okay, this is what's going on in your particular industry sector. These are the sort of adversary groups that are operating against you. These are their TTPs tactics, techniques, and procedures. Those will be TTPs is something that comes up a lot. But this is who's targeting you. This is the type of stuff they're doing. This is what you want to simulate. So that happens with a sort of collaborative approach. And we talk about various ways we could simulate these things. And we can't always simulate things exactly. Sometimes we have to come up with some compromises in the way that we actually simulate these things. Because going back to what we're doing, we're doing this ethically and legally. And that means that Unlike criminals, we can't actually break the law to do it. So, <laughs> Being contracted, especially since you're not working directly for the company, there's some inherent risk there, right? In terms of what you can and can't do when you get into legally questionable territory and the fact that people inside the company may not know that this exercise is happening. Well, that's a good point. Um, covert red teaming is risky. I mean, all red teaming can be risky. In penetration testing can be risky. I know a lot of the time with penetration testing, you know, people are reluctant to do a pen test against live systems in case they go down. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you don't want to do your pen testing if you're a retailer. You don't want to do your pen testing like 
on Black Friday. Like you just <laughs> you're not going to do that, right? Because right. you need your capacity. You don't want anything to go wrong. So there was always things that you do when you're managing those kind of technical risks. And actually, most businesses are very good at, at managing that technical risk because you manage that technical risk to your technical systems all the time in BAU. What you don't tend to think about so much is the people risk and the process risk when you're doing red teaming. That tends to be trickier. And that's trickier because we don't do it all the time. So um, one of the, you know, the big problems that you have when you're running red team, one of the biggest ones is authority for testing. When you do pen test, like it's pretty obvious what's in scope and what isn't in scope. It's pretty obvious whether you own it or not. And therefore, it's pretty obvious whether you can grant authority to actually do the pen test against it. But when you come to red teaming and your target's the whole business, you know, as soon as you get to an organization of any appreciable size, you've got problems where you might not even know if you own all the systems that are in your network, mm. because you could have a contractor that's got equipment in your network and you don't know where it is. You could have acquired, you know, 12 businesses in the last 12 months, integrated them with your network and not have full knowledge of everything that's in there. So you've got this imperfect knowledge environment and you don't necessarily know where everything is. And then you've got the even bigger problem of people. So people are inherently unpredictable. And with red teaming, <laughs> if you're doing things like attacking people, well, you have to account for the things that people do that you don't expect them to do. And that is a tricky thing. So if I, Ned, if I send you a phishing email with some malware attached because I'm targeting you, you could just turn around, forward it to Ethan. Ethan's out of scope. He's got our malware. That kind of stuff you have to account for and manage the risk of because what you can't do legally is start sending malware to random people and infecting their machines and going, right. oh, well, someone else said it was fine for us to do that. You know, it's... <laughs> It's complicated in that in that respect because you don't have all the information, you don't have really well-defined boundaries, and you have to do all this without really annoying everyone. On some level, though, don't you get some kind of exception to the rule because the bad guys aren't going to play by the rules? So to be truly effective as a red team, isn't there some way you can engage and, and truly perform the testing that needs to be performed so that you know you're secure. There's always compromises. So, you know, there's things that we absolutely would not do. I mean, if you are a really determined adversary, you will be able to get someone to do a thing that you want to do. Um, it all depends how far you go, you know, right up the extreme end. If you are really determined to get someone to do something that you want them to do, you will target them personally. You will target their family. You will target their life until you find a lever that gets them to do the thing that you want them to do. Okay, so we're talking about things that are would be truly nefarious criminal activity, like like a threat against someone's life or family, as opposed to cybery things you can do in the you know, seedy belly of the internet. Well, there's a real gray area in the middle there. And the mm. question ethically, so there's a, there's a legal line, that you can't cross but then the ethics line becomes really gray and it's what are you comfortable crossing and that's not actually very well defined and it all comes down to what's your risk and reward and what is your ethical framework that you're working in so let's take phishing for example most red teams involve some element of phishing someone at some point and there is there a big gray area between what you could legally do to someone and what you would probably want to do ethically to someone. And if you think about it, it's all to do with handling the emotions of those those people that you are going to target. So um, there was a case um, in the UK a couple of years ago, just after COVID, after the pandemic, where a company called West Midlands Trains did a phishing exercise against all of their staff. And the phishing hook was 
you know, thanks for working hard through COVID. Here's a bonus for everyone. Loads of people clicked it because working hard through COVID was really, really bad for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they clicked it and they felt good with him. And then they were told, oh, this is a phishing attack. Hmm. Now, those people were very, very upset because they were quite happy that they had got this bonus that was then immediately ripped away. The unions got involved. There was terrible press. Everyone got very, very angry that worked at West Midlands Trains about this mm-hmm. phishing attack. Now, there is a really good argument. That's a good hook, right? That is a great hook. And adversary using that hook will get the clicks. They'll get what they want. Um, on the other hand, as a company, if you start doing that, what you've ended up doing is creating an environment where you are effectively hostile towards your employees or your employees are hostile towards you and if you want a good security culture you want to avoid anything that causes that friction where someone has you know been upset by what you've done has been made anxious by what you've done you know it has caused a a sort of rift in the trust in the relationship between employer and employee Mm. so the question is what can you get away with Mm, (laughs) and that's always a bit of a moving target because you need to balance up the risk of someone getting upset and there being adverse reputational consequences or you know hr consequences from this thing that you do as part of a red team and what's the benefit because you know ultimately somebody will click something at some point if an adversary uses the right hook and so part of red team management is deciding where that line is because legally nothing legally wrong with them doing that but morally mm, didn't really help them didn't really help them at the end of the day (laughs) um you can always find something that someone will click on the question is how personal is that going to be and what's the risk of them being upset by it so it's a really gray area really gray area and one that you kind of have to think about carefully yeah, I think of another gray area being just uh, personal accounts or personal usage of company assets, like checking your email or your Facebook. Is it ethically or legally responsible for a red teamer to target someone's personal accounts, knowing that they're going to use those accounts on a company-owned device? Well, legally, it's <laughs> complicated to answer the question legally because it depends where you are and which jurisdiction, which laws are applying. and uh, any In the, We don't do that. We won't do that. Um, because that is a personal account and that is a personal thing and that's crossing a boundary that we you know it's not legally allowed it's not ethically justifiable however it is absolutely something that an adversary could and would do we focus entirely on corporate accounts for that reason but that's not that's not clear cut either Um, if you think about all the things that you might do on your corporate device so you may like you say check your own personal email from your corporate device you may make notes or write a letter or something on your corporate device and save a copy of it on your corporate device you may have conversations with your friends from your corporate device at some point you know this is, these are things that people do if you fish somebody if i were to fish you ned and you fell for my fish ran my well or whatever and then i'm on your machine and i'm as you and i'm then going to be rifling through your files looking at your browsing history maybe looking at your chat history looking for the next thing that i use and that in itself is a minefield when you think about how uncomfortable it makes you, I'm sure, to think about the fact that I could be rifling through whatever you're doing on your work account. Like that's that's a really nasty feeling. And you've got to yeah. be very mindful of people's individual privacy and what is, you know, fair game and what isn't fair game. Because if I, you know, if, if I'm on your corporate laptop and I can grab the memory from your browser and you are logged into Facebook in your personal account, well, I've got a route to log into your Facebook account now Mm -hmm. because i've got your cookies and i can pretend to be you 
that's a really uncomfortable thing and one of the big things that we have to manage risk-wise when we're doing red teaming because it is really complicated and potentially really damaging to individuals as well right Gemma, when you're working through some of these attacks, sometimes you're doing simulations. Okay, so we deal in this world of both on-premises infrastructure and cloud infrastructure. Is there a difference when you're doing these simulations up against uh, cloud infrastructure versus on-premises? So some things are very different and some things are very similar. Hmm. So (laughs) the things that you would think are similar are often we're looking for user credentials that let us do things. Now, with with on-premise stuff, we tend to be looking for a username and password. When it comes down to a sort of cloud-heavy organization, what we're typically looking for is like an API key mm. or tokens or something that allows us to interact with, you know, a service. And those are the sort of commonalities that you tend to have between the sort of on-premise and the cloud-based stuff. Cloud-based, I'm sure you talk about this a lot. What do you mean by cloud? So many different things can be meant by cloud. Now, if you look right. at the the sort of big hosting providers, you know, your Azure, your AWS, your Google, it's it's kind of like an infrastructure network that you build is just someone else's infrastructure network. And then you've got all your sort of platform as a service bits on top of it if you want it. And, and that's not hugely different. You know, we're looking for the tokens once you're in whatever this cloud network is that you're hosting either you know you might be a whole bunch of ec2 hosts tied together it's kind of like you're on an internal network it's just an internal network that you're hosting somewhere else so that tends to be again a fairly similar sort of approach where it gets interesting is where you've got the type of cloud that is effectively a bunch of software as a service components bolted together with apis and things and different user accounts there and the reason that's really tricky goes back to this, can you actually run a red team against these um, components? And quite often the answer is no, because you don't own Mm. them. So you can't authorize an attack against them. So all the sort of direct attack mechanisms, you can't authorize those because it's against the terms of service and you don't own it and you can't grant authority. And then you go, going back to your point, Ethan, about, well, an adversary would do it. Why can't we? You know, we need to know we're secure. Yeah, you do. But you can't simulate it in the same sort of covert way. You, you've got to actually start involving people in this process. And that's where you can't really do in the same way full-on covert red teaming because you kind of have to start involving the yellow team, the builders, and the blue team, the defenders, in doing the simulation. What you're often really looking for is answering the question, okay, let's assume that somebody compromised the account of one of our developers. What could they do if they managed to compromise the account of one of our developers? How do we detect that? How do we stop it? You know, how would we know? And that goes down to all sorts of things like, you know, have you got any logging in your software as a service components? Does the software as a service component even give you any logging? You know, is there any you can consume? Or do you have to develop your own logging on top of whatever this component is so that you've got the information to do this? And because you can't do covert red teaming to do that, what you end up having to do is, you know, get your builders to create you an account and then walk you through how they use the platform and get the blue team to walk you through, all right, what logging have you got? What information have you got on this platform? And you effectively turn it into a purple orange smear of color (laughs) where everyone's working together to try and answer those questions because you can't do it in the same covert manner because you can't get the authority. If you were running a software as a service platform where you had multiple tenants logging in and you know, doing what they need to do in that platform, you wouldn't let one of those red team the whole thing because you'd be exposing all your other customers on the platform. You know, it's it's pretty logical. 
even though probably those software as a service platforms are more vulnerable to things like credential spraying than most of your on-premise systems because they're all exposed on the internet. Mm. So it's tricky. It's tricky. Doing it legally, doing it ethically, it's difficult. It feels like as a company, you know, hiring out these services, you need to do it. But in the back of my head, I'd be going, but man, there's so much we couldn't allow them to do for all the reasons you've been outlining. And so I'd still feel vulnerable, a little naked, maybe. Maybe. A lot of the challenge, when I say we're running red teams, a lot of the challenge is trying to get to the point where you're getting good coverage of those risks and those threats in a way that you know you know you're in a better place to respond than you would have been before. And there's lots of things that you can't do straight off. But when I say you can't just do it covertly, there's often a way to simulate it. So supply chain compromise is an interesting one. So supply chain compromise where you've got third parties involved. So let's say you have a third party that VPNs in from, I don't know, let's say you've outsourced something to India. There's a VPN in from India. You've got a third party coming in doing support tickets for you or something like that. And you want to simulate what happens if our third party company gets popped and there's an adversary in their network. Mm. Well, your third party support company isn't going to come along and say, yeah, 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 go on, put some malware in our network. That'll be fine. You know, <laughs> right. that's that's not going to be in the contract there. But, you know, you could probably simulate that VPN by giving your red team a VPN that's exactly like the VPN you give your third party support company. Mm-hmm. Now, that won't be the most covert thing in the world because you're going to have to go through the provisioning process for that VPN, whatever it is, which means someone's going to know you've given it to someone. You're going to have to give them the accounts that you give. Someone's going to know about that. Um, but you can provision a situation that is like the third-party support company with the same rights, and you can then simulate from that assumed compromise, okay, someone's got in, let's assume they're an adversary, what can they do from this point? So there is an awful lot of stuff that you can simulate. It just often the compromise comes with the secrecy. So a lot of stuff you can't do completely covertly. You have to then, you know, compromise the secrecy, start giving access, giving leg ups, you know, that sort of stuff. So your red team can go from a point where, you know, you just assume that something bad has happened. Let's pretend someone was threatened within the organization to take this USB key and pop it in. And then what? Exactly. Let's assume the cleaner has been bought by Russia and, you know, <laughs> it's going to plug a device in next time they come into vacuum, that sort of stuff. And, and you can game that because you've got the control. As long as you've got the imagination to think about the scenario, there is a way to red team it. It sounds like a lot of this uh, starts with tabletop exercises and, and trying to figure out and imagine what the scenarios would be, what you're most concerned about, and then distilling that down to actual objectives you can test. Yeah. And I guess that's part of the engagement with a really good red team is is figuring that kind of stuff out. Definitely is complicated. What other things should I bear in mind if I was in a position to bring a red team on or my company has hired a red team organization to do some of this testing? What should I bear in mind to get the best bang for my buck in terms of of that engagement? So a lot of it depends on how much you know about your business and about your data. If you know your business really well and you know your data really well, then you probably know your threats really well as well. And if you know your threats really well, then what you want to do to get really good value out of a red team, if it's your first red team, is focus on the threats that are most likely to happen and check that you have got decent looting coverage of all the things that are likely to happen in that check you're in a good position to respond to those type of threats that are likely it changes a bit when you have done a lot of red teaming with your business because if you've covered off those scenarios that are really really likely to happen probably don't want to do those over and over and over again because you've already answered that question you might then want to focus on the you know, sort of 
black swan scenarios where it's all right this is something really really unusual that might happen what happens if this really unlikely event does occur and can we respond to that so it depends on your maturity a bit but making sure you focus on the actual threats that you are interested in is um, point number one or tip number one the other big thing to bear in mind is making sure you debrief everyone properly this goes back to talking about the different teams working in silos so if you run a red team and uh, let's say we get in, we grab the crown jewels, you know, we get domain admin, we prove we can de- deploy malware, and then we run away and we give, you know, every the blue team and the yellow team a bunch of things they didn't find and a bunch of things they didn't build properly and say, off you go, that was fun, we'll come back and do it again next year. You're not likely to get much improvement because you're not likely to get the understanding. You know, it's just a bunch of vulnerabilities that someone's got to fix. It doesn't teach them much about what we did whereas the debrief sessions are so useful for imparting the way that the adversary thinks the way the adversary moves quite often you'll find the blue team is very often composed of people that used to be the yellow team it's not often composed of people that used to do red team so it's quite often people that used to build stuff people that used to code stuff they sort of move into security they end up doing the defending Mm -hmm. they didn't often do the attacking sometimes you have you get some great blue teamers that used to be red teamers absolutely brilliant at it but the reason they're so good when they cross over is that they understand how the adversary thinks whereas a lot of the time if someone's been a developer or um you know an architect or you know a designer they don't necessarily understand exactly how an adversary works in an environment whereas if you do your debriefing properly you start actually teaching how attackers think and what attackers mm-hmm. are after and what they're actually going to do next and it goes back to that mindset um the anecdote i mentioned about the threat being the person behind the keyboard not actually the thing that they do quite often you'll find a blue team that you know gets a malware alert on a server same sort of thing you know mimi cats has run on this server mimi cats has been deleted from the server oh well let's say that server's fine it's like no it's not fine <laughs> someone put mimi cats on that server you're gonna have right. to go and look deeper and it's that sort of joining up of if someone had put that thing on that server or if someone had got access to yeah, you say you've got an I am alert for, you know, a particular account has logged in that hasn't logged in for ages, right? What does that mean? Who did that? Why did they do it? What were they doing when they did it? Where did they get that credential from? That sort of stuff you have to piece together because you, you quite often got, you know, the individual pieces of information. What you really need to be effective is for your blue team to understand how to piece that information together into a story of what somebody did. And your yellow team, your builders, need to understand how the things or the decisions that they have made feed into the vulnerability of a whole process rather than just their little individual silo. So debriefing properly is a really good way to do that because it gets people asking questions about how we did it rather than what we did and how we did it and why we did it that way. You answer those questions, you get some good info. The other thing is don't spend too much on a red team if you're not mature enough to spend too much on a red team. And that's um, there's a there's a red team for every budget. There really is. And if you have a blue team that isn't very experienced, you could spend a lot of money on a covert red team, come in from outside, uh, rip through your network, find a bunch of holes, get the crown jewels, run away, and then your blue team have seen nothing, done nothing. <laughs> They get a report that tells them they've seen nothing and done nothing. You've run away with everything. And then they probably feel pretty down about it. You know, (laughs) they don't feel like they've succeeded. (laughs) That is not a good thing. And fine, if, if, you know, if what you want to do is 
you know, prove a point to the board, for example, that you need more budget or you need more training or you need, you know, it's really great for doing that, but it's not good for actually improving the performance of your blue team. So, you know, there's a, there's a red team budget for everything. And probably a lot of the time you can do a lot of the simulation without doing a full covert closed box exercise. You can do some of the simulation through assumed compromise scenarios, and it will often end up being cheaper to do it that way. And you will often end up getting better coverage doing it that way of the things that are most important to you. A lot of the time, some of the most time consuming things that you can spend doing with red teaming is getting your first foothold in an environment, which normally means fishing someone. It can take us weeks to get a fishing attack through that's credible, that doesn't get detected, that bypasses all the controls. I can take weeks and that's great if what you really want to do is assess how susceptible everyone is to that sort of attack. But I can tell you, and you can probably understand this, given enough time, we can get someone to click on something that's a phishing attack. And anyone who runs any kind of phishing simulations at scale will tell you that at some point someone's going to click on anything and do something. So don't waste too much money answering the question, will somebody click on a phishing email? Because the answer is, yes, eventually someone will click on a phishing email. May as well skip that if that's not important to know. So, Gemma, a lot of the people listening to this show would be yellow teamers, I think. Uh, A lot of the architects and folks that are the builders, uh, they maintain infrastructure and sysadmins and so on. Let's say they're interested in moving into the security field and they're interested in in red teaming, especially. You said most of them make a transition to blue team, not red team. So how, how do you go from yellow team to red team? It's actually probably quite a difficult transition if you're in an organization that doesn't have an internal red team. So um, in an organization that does have an internal red team, your best way to get into that red team is to start pushing that collaboration with the red team, start becoming useful to the red team, start learning from the red team, and um, you know start having words in that red team manager's ear about how you'd really like to come and be part of the red team and mm-hmm. starting that sort of stuff. So that's that's one way if you're a part of an organisation that's got those different teams. But if you want to move into red teaming generally, it's quite a I would say it's quite a difficult industry to sort of fall sideways into. Most red teamers in outside contract organizations have a background where they were pen testers before. So it's an interesting field in that not every brilliant pen tester makes a great red teamer and not every great red teamer was a brilliant pen tester. I mean, can it be learned? Because a lot of us that got into IT got in through certification. So we got into to books or we joined some communities online. We took some certs and we, we started out at a junior level, but that was our, our wedge. Our foot in the door was that cert. So that will get you into pen testing. So get your certs. It will get you into pen testing. So sort of what I'm coming on to is that you can get your certs for pen testing and get into pen testing through, uh, you know, there's some really great resources out there like um, Try Hack Me and um, Hack the Box, where there's all sorts of free sort of learning exercises out there that teach you various bits of pen testing that are really quite good fun. But red teaming is a slightly different mindset. And you'll find if you end up doing pen testing, there's some pen testers who naturally end up thinking in that sort of graph-based way that you have to to be a red teamer. Some some pen testers really good at getting in-depth coverage of everything. That's a really methodical way of thinking, but they're not so good at joining up the dots between an initial point of compromise and achievement of an objective. 
And similarly, some red teamers are really, really good at that sort of graph-based thinking of, you know, initial compromise all the way. This is the next step, the next step, next step, next step, until we get the database at the end, which is the thing we wanted. But you put them on a pen test where they've got to do full coverage and, you know, it's not a natural fit for them to be that methodical. The technical skills really do cross over. The mindset tends to vary a little bit. And not every pen tester is a natural red teamer and not every red teamer is a natural pen tester. But red teams generally are full of people who used to be pen testers in some form. So your route to red teaming, if you're looking at sort of outside consulting red teaming, is often basically go and be a pen tester for a bit and then find your way into red teaming through pen testing and those scenario-based penetration testing assessments and then on to the full red teaming thing. But it, it doesn't help that quite colloquially, quite often the pen testers are also called red team. So <laughs> terminology is also tricky there. Right. Can you recommend certification tracks that are worth going down in that? I have heard some security professionals mock certain certifications as just really worthless. I don't think I've come across one that is really worthless because <laughs> they always tell you something about people. And, you know, some of them aren't very well respected because they're not very well proctored or, you know, they've been subject to cheating scandals in the past and things like that. Mm -hmm. But things that are well respected. So there are some offsec offensive security courses, which are really, really good. So pen testing with Kali Linux, for example, and um, the OSCP that you you can take after that really good indicator of you know whether you have it have it in you to be a good pen tester or not is an oscp it's got its problems all the qualifications have their problems but that's a really good indicator zero point security have some great courses for red teaming um so they have red team ops red team ops too they are very good courses that give you an overview of all the things that you sort of need to know in red teaming sort of on the technical side of red teaming so it is things like what is command and control? How do we do command and control? How do we do reconnaissance? You know, how do we persist on a host? How do we steal credentials from a host? How do we pivot from a host? All sorts of things like that. Really, really good course specifically for red teaming. Uh, and they have sort of very good reviews, if you like, in the community or very good reputation. And there are other courses. So in the UK, particularly, Crest is a very well-respected organization for certification. So there are qualifications out there for pen testers. So there's the Crest Practitioner Security Analyst, Crest Registered Tester. Um, and then the next level up is the Crest Certified Tester. And there's an infrastructure qualification and application qualification. And then there's the Simulated Attack Specialist and the Simulated Attack Manager. I'm currently a Simulated Attack Manager under that qualification framework so those are very popular in the UK what I would say is that it varies worldwide which qualifications are most sought after in the market and so it's worth sort of looking at your local market for what qualifications are best respected because it does vary I think in the US um, a lot of the SANS qualifications are much better or better looked for better known than, for example, the Crest qualifications. So, you know, if you're in the US, it makes more sense to go and look at SANS. If you're in the UK, maybe Crest. So it's a bit of a mixed landscape because there's no real sort of global front runner. Do you know if SANS and Crest both accept Mr. Robot for continuing education credits? I watched that series. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know, but I, I suspect you could ask them. <laughs> I think it's unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Gemma, this has been a fascinating conversation um, and real interesting glimpse into the world of red teaming that I've never had before. So that, that's been awesome. Are there a few key takeaways that you could distill down for our listeners today? Yeah. So I've said it already. Red teaming can do all sorts of things. And if you want to get good value from red teaming, you can have a red team that gives you a really good way of assessing you know, your capability in terms of protecting against an incident, your capability in terms of detecting an incident, and gives you a really good level of um, the coverage of your controls and how effective you will actually be in responding to an incident. It can be very effective. It can be very realistic, but you've got to make sure you've got the scope right and that you're emulating things in the right way for that to happen. Another thing that I would want people to take away is that, um, you know, actually operating ethically is quite complicated. It's quite difficult. There's a lot of different things to think about. And while we're really good at managing technical risks, like not taking down servers and, you know, not crashing websites and things like that, when it comes to managing people, that's a lot harder to find a hard and fast line for. And you have to think about ethically what you're actually comfortable with, because the, you know, I can do this legally, but should I do it ethically? That is a big gray area that you have to take into account so that you don't mm-hmm. upset people and you don't end up sort of causing reputational problems. And the last takeaway really is that whatever your budget, there is a way Red Teaming can help you. There are really small exercises that answer a particular question about a particular set of controls, right up to full covert simulations that cost an awful lot of money because you need to make a really big point to you know a board of directors about a particular cyber risk that isn't being taken seriously or you know you you need to show a regulator that you know you've done all your due diligence properly and yeah there's a red team for everything it's just about knowing exactly what you want to achieve and how much money you've got excellent Uh, given the current climate i'd be amazed if any board of directors wasn't worried about security but you know, you never, you never know. know. What you'll find. You never yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, if people want to know more about you, are there some good places they can find some blog articles you've written or follow you on a social media platform of some kind? Yep. So we write a blog on the Cybris website, um, which you can find at www.cybris.com slash blog. And I tend to write quite a few articles on red teaming there. You can also find me on LinkedIn quite easily. So uh, Gemma Moore at Cybris. I tend to be on LinkedIn quite a bit. So yeah, feel free. All right, Gemma Moore. Thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in virtual high fives to you. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. If there's a guest you want to have on the show, let us know. You can hit us up on Twitter or is it X, whatever it is called now, uh, at Day2CloudShow, or you can fill out the request form at Day2Cloud.io. And hey, uh, technology vendors out there, do you have a way cool cloud product that you want to share with our audience of IT professionals? Well, you can do it you can become a D2 Cloud sponsor. You'll reach several thousands of listeners, all of whom have technical problems to solve, and maybe your product fixes their problem, but they'll never know unless you tell them about it on our show. You can find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.